Debbie, thank you for inviting me to come out. And uh, it's nice to see several of you that I've known for a lot of years and now Alcoholics Anonymous. So let me get through the, uh, I don't know, the little rituals that I'm supposed to get through for a second. Uh, congratulations to those of you who took chips, whether it was for um, a few days or months of sobriety or, and those of you who took birthdays if you stayed. I hope you're still here. I go to a meeting where if you don't stay at the meeting and, and do those things, you don't take it again another year. Right? Uh, it's a, we're a very cruel group. And uh, <laughs> we were, an old timer told us years ago, I said, if you want us to sit and listen to you take, hear your birthday crap, then you gotta be here to sit and listen to our birthday <laughs> crap. And, uh, and that's a little thing we, I was raised with. You're gonna find out I was raised in a very strict way in Alcoholics Anonymous. And please do not hold that against me. Uh, it was a necessary thing for me to have that kind of discipline in my life because I was pretty undisciplined when I got here. But for those of you who stood up and said you were new, if you're still here, let me tell you something. I think that's one of the bravest things anybody can do. And I don't mean just to identify as an alcoholic. I mean to even stand up in a crowd of people and say anything. I admire that. By the time I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, the thought of saying anything in public, unless it was in a bar, frightened me. Huh? I mean, any, I was so worried about being judged, so worried about not looking cool, so worried about the way I might, uh, what you would think about me, that it terrified me with that little ritual. I mean, they can get up and say all they want, we don't do this to embarrass you, but I was convinced they did it to embarrass me. You know what I mean? It was, a, uh, I, was I was positive, it was just a vicious little act. And, um, and I would worry before the meeting, hours before, that they were going to do that again. And I didn't, I was too new to, I'd never been around AA. I didn't know they did it every meeting. Um, so I hoped they would forget the next night. And so I would be sitting in the back thinking, well, they're not going to get to it because I wasn't paying attention anyway. And I'd missed that part. And I thought, well, we're, they're not going to ask us tonight. And then they would start. I'd say, can we see the hands of the newcomers? And I would freeze, too scared to leave but hoping that maybe I would just be overlooked. You know what I'm saying? And so they would start, and I and always have conflicting simultaneous emotions. There's never just one clean emotion. So along with the fear that uh, I was gonna have to get up and say my name was this terror that if I didn't get up and say my name, somebody would yell, hey, how about you? Which would have been worse. I couldn't decide which, and so I would panic. And they would be coming along and finally I would think, okay. And I would jump up and I'd squeak out, I'm Mike, I'm an alcoholic. And then I would sit down and miss the next 30 minutes of the meeting wondering how I looked. Uh, <laughs> how, how, uh, did, did it come out okay? I'm never going back again. I swear to God, I'm never gonna go back again. I missed a lot of meetings thinking. Um, I still do to this day. But if you were able to even do that tonight, I commend you. All those little silly things. You know, it seemed to me when I got into Alcoholics Anonymous, and I will get to my story sometime, maybe tonight, um, <laughs> that when I came into AA, everybody else in the room liked AA, that everybody else wanted to be here, that everybody else thought it was a good idea to never drink again and never go back to their friends. I had opposite feelings, you know what I'm saying? I have. Uh, I'm the kind of person that had developed such a, um, a twisted mental state that those kind of social situations were just horribly awkward for me. I mean, I was okay in the bar. I was okay hanging out with people. If I sat around with my friends and made fun of other people, I was very happy man. 
but anything short of that made me, un you know, I've never been a joiner of any kind of animal club. I'm not like a moose, an elk, anything like that. Any of those kind of social things are just, they're too much. Uh, and so when I came in here, it seemed like everybody was happy. And, uh, and if you are, congratulations, but, um, I've been here 42 years and some nights I'm just not that happy, you know what I mean? Uh, I was born disappointed. <laughs> it's the truth. Everything in my life will disappoint me at some moment. Even the things that I am assured were going to fix me. Even the things that I'm sure are going to make me happy. I have a certain degree of happiness, but it's momentary. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, I got what I needed. Uh, and, and, and then a new thought comes. And, and I'll get into some more of that later because I think it has a direct result uh, have to do with my drinking and my using and my carrying on. But up until I came into here, I just didn't understand. You know, I look at it this way as an old man. If getting my way was going to fix me, I should have been happy a long time ago. I get my way a lot. It just doesn't last. Because the, what's wrong with me doesn't get fixed by outside things. And I suffer from a delusion, drunk or sober, that I know what it is that's going to make me happy. And I believe it each time. It, my mind tells me if I just could twist it a little bit, like if just one more thing, if I just had her, if I just got rid of her, if I just had this job, if I had this new car, if you gave me enough attention, if you left me alone. I mean, the constant battle in my brain at work is a uh, not a picturesque thing, but an, a fascinating thing to me at least, right? Um, and alcohol fixed an awful lot of that. The night before I stopped drinking, I was out like I had been for 14 years on another run away from home again. I was a bad drinker. I'm the kind of person that you never had to ask, has he been drinking? If you were <laughs> I not only slur my words, I look slur. I, I, I act slur. I'm, I'd never heard the phrase uh, more or less insanely, mild, never mildly intoxicated, more or less insanely drunk till I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, of course, but, but that was the truth. None of my young friends, when we started drinking, we were teenagers, I never had anybody's parents say, why don't you drink like him? Um, why don't you drink like Mike? You're, I've never heard the next day after a drinking binge, uh, well, you did that well last night. Thank you. <laughs> and I can't recall ever thinking I should drink less either. That's a, the fascinating part to me. I thought I should drink better. I thought I should drink, but not have whatever was going to happen, happen. And I didn't know that it was really beyond my control. I was, would have sworn to you that if I just tried a little harder while drinking, I could get by tonight. I had no idea what was coming. I grew up, some of you have heard my story. I'll cut through the early part real quickly. I grew up in an alcoholic home. There's a shock, huh? Um, my dad was the alcoholic in our family and he was a nice alcoholic. I mean, he ran bars and nightclubs. Uh, we're of Italian descent. My, my Italian buddy John's here with me, uh, and I'm really glad you're here. I mean, I'm really glad to see you. But I grew up in a neighborhood where Italians lived together and uh, back east, uh, and um, my father had a little joint. 
on the corner, and it was the kind of place that never seemed to be closed. I mean, it must have been, but I'm, it, I don't know when. But it, it was the kind of place that even as a child walking in there brought me peace of mind, just physically walking into the place. It was air conditioned, they had pinball machines, they had characters in there that looked look like characters, you know what I mean? They, uh, they were over, the men were over in the corner making their bets for the day with the bookie for the horse races and the, the women. I was there in the morning when things were still okay. Um, I was there when people looked pretty. I was there when the guys looked cool. I was there when everybody was happy. And I got an impression that there was nothing wrong with drinking at all. My mother had grown up in an alcoholic home and did her best in my family to keep things in, and kept us together. She loved us to pieces, she loved my father and she kept the family together forever. But the price she paid for that was a lot of pain and a lot of anxiety and a lot of Al-Anon later on. Huh? But I developed an idea early on that was gonna serve me very poorly. And that was this, that the only thing wrong with bad drinking was other people's reaction to it. If people wouldn't complain, people, cool people like us would have a good time, right? And I mean, uh, and so I would defend my father's right to drink. And he wasn't a mean drunk. He, he was drunk a lot, but he wasn't a mean drunk. And he got in trouble. And he had those kind of things happen that happened in, in families, at least like mine, where the police would come to the door or bring him home or make the calls from the hospital or the women would call my mother. And, and you know, it was just one of the, it was like that. But on the other hand, we had an extremely loving home. And speaking of loving, I'm one of those kind of guys that would get into that modeling kind of drinking about feeling bad, how none of the women in my life really loved me enough. Huh? And it dawned on me after several years of being in Alcoholics Anonymous, that wasn't true at all. I had some of the best partners on earth. They loved me to pieces. I just can't feel it enough. You can't give me enough. And if you do give me enough for a moment, it's never enough the next day. Because there's something empty in me. There's something that's lost in me that I, I don't care what you call it, it's just not quite all right. And so here's what happened to me. When I was 17 years old, I was at this all boys Catholic high school. Life was going along pretty well. I had a job after school. My senior year was the best year I was gonna have in a long time. I surfed in those days. I had this beautiful 1940 Ford Woody station wagon. It was in perfect condition. I was a pretty good surfer. Um, I was still young, not bad looking. Uh, I wasn't in a relationship yet, so I was still happy. Life was going on really well for me. And I started drinking, not because I had a great need to drink, but I went to a party and I drank and I drank like I was going to drink for the next 14 years, badly. I drink in blackouts, but I never heard of such a thing until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Instantly, I was in a blackout. The first week of my drinking, I didn't have, you know, there's a, a part in the big book, in the, in the doctor's opinion, where Dr. Silkworth talks about people like us that he worked with. And he says something like this, that the patients he was working with presented to him and they had so many problems that had piled up that they had become astonishingly difficult to solve. When I started drinking, I didn't have any problems that were astonishingly difficult to solve. I, I had no problems. 
but it took almost no time to start adding to that pile of problems that were beginning to become astonishingly difficult. And they were all the patterns that I've heard about in Alcoholics Anonymous and the ones that I've heard about in life that were going to happen to me that I would have told you, no, it's not going to happen. It's not really going to happen. It's not going to be that bad. I'm not going to leave a family. I would never walk out of my wife and two little kids. I won't do it. But I did it. It was those kind of things. But it didn't start out that way. It was less dramatic. It was a little car wreck the first week I'm drinking. It was... Uh, Going over to see a girl in a blackout and having some trouble for with her dad. Um, it was a pleasant day, but it was a lot of trouble. And I, um, back in my day, the Vietnam War was going on, and there was a deal that if you were in college, signed up for 15 units each semester, that you could defer your uh, enlistment where you went into the service. And so I went to college and I signed up for 15 units first semester, 16 units the second semester. That's 31 units for those of you who are trying to figure it out. I, I paused. I um, And at the end of the first full year of school, I had completed six units of school. Uh, because other thing, I had one unit, one unit was introduction to college. It was a one hour course. I finished it. I uh, had two units in handball and I had completed one class. When I was 19 and in boot camp, I'm sitting there thinking, <laughs> I was thinking how unfair the world was. How, how did I get here? I was just having a good time. I was having such a good time, I quit going to class. I was having such a good time, I quit doing anything except running with the guys and chasing girls and doing the things that bring pressure to somebody like me. I know now my alcoholic, my Drinking was alcoholic. There's no doubt about it. But you couldn't have convinced me or maybe my friends maybe back then. But I had a propensity to have bizarre things happen when I was drinking. It wasn't just a fun evening. I became violent. And I would get more and more violent as the years went by. And I'll tell you a real quick story. This is Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you're here and you're just, you never used any drugs, there's no requirement that you've tried anything. I talk a little bit about some of my drug use simply for this reason. It confused me about whether I was alcoholic or not. It made it difficult. It's not as cool to say you're alcoholic as to say you're a drug addict. Now, if you believe that's true, then you deserve to be here. <laughs> but isn't it? I mean, I got a guy in my home group the other night talking. He goes, you know, I, I don't mind being a drug, a dope fiend, but my God, an alcoholic. Uh, I guess you have to have standards. I, I, I don't know. But when you think about it, they're a bit mixed up. The same week I started drinking, I heard about something that I believe to be the best value in narcotic sales. They were called Bennies. They, they were these white pills. You paid $1, got 10 of them, and they really wired you. And I'll tell you my first experience with them because it was just like the last experience. They're very similar. And I'll tell you in very hip terms, because as you can see, I'm very hip. And uh, I'm woke and hip. It's a very good combination. <laughs> Pretty soon I'll have no words to use, but I, I, uh, I'm confused. I, I knew this guy could get them. So I called my contact, right? <laughs> and I ordered $1 worth of bennies. 
And I became convinced that somehow law enforcement had found out about this big deal going down. And, and I mean, I wasn't, I was positive they somehow knew these things. And so when I went to pick up, <laughs> I'm driving this Volkswagen with no muffler and Coors labels, Coors labels stuck all over the bumpers for how many beers I'd had that day. So I guess so if a policeman said, how many did you drink tonight? I could just point. I, I'm not sure why I put it on the outside of my car, but it, <laughs> I'd already lost all perspective in the first weeks of drinking. On the way over there, I thought I was being followed by the police. So I did everything I could to lose them. And, I, and it, it worked. I, I uh, spun around. I parked in people's houses and their driveways. I went back home twice, left again. When I finally got over there where this, my friend Bill was working, he said, I couldn't get you the bennies. And he gave me this little tiny bag. He said, you have $5. I was only supposed to pay a dollar, remember? He said, this is called methadrine. It will do for you exactly what the bennies would have done. And I gave him the $5, that's all I had. And he gave me this tiny aluminum foil packet. And he ran off and I sped away before capture. And <laughs> they, uh, <laughs> but you can't do it in a Volkswagen, but I put it out of that gas station. <laughs> and I found a dark construction site and I opened it up and there were no pills. And he hadn't given me any instructions. I mean, and I thought I'd been cheated. It was such a small amount. It was this white yellow powder. I put a little bit in my mouth. I mean, I knew I had to get it in me somehow. And nothing happened. I waited. I waited a minute and nothing happened. <laughs> I, I poured it all in my mouth. <laughs> my poor little mother used to wait up for me no matter what. Uh, and on that night, I got home early. You know what I'm saying? I came shooting through the door. Boom. <laughs> and my dad was home that night. And I hadn't talked to them much. But it was about to change that evening. <laughs> I talked till they went to bed. <laughs> and then I did what I was going to do a thousand times. I'm in my own home sneaking around. I'm creeping around my bedroom. I'm feeling really wicked. You know what I mean? I'm looking out the window, chewing my mouth raw, exciting. Needing anything I could need. I read a newspaper for the first time in my life. And I don't mean I glanced at it. I read the legal notices. <laughs> so that when my parents got up in the morning, I resumed our talk, blah, blah, blah. They never asked me another question that summer. They didn't give me <laughs> My dad's drinking was going so bad that I just got, I just slipped away. I used one form of speed or another all that, all those years in combination with the drinking. I didn't mind being an alcoholic. I had such a warped idea of, of, of drinking men that I thought it was cool. And if you said to me, you know, you're an alcoholic and you were, especially if you were a pretty lady and I was sitting at a bar, I would think, well, thank you, you know, so are you. And um, it was a compliment. The people, I, I admired people who lived that kind of life and I wanted to be like them. I didn't mind being an alcoholic till I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, and then when I heard what, you, what I thought you were saying, and you were saying this, if you're alcoholic, you shouldn't drink. I wasn't sure I was alcoholic anymore. <laughs> I thought, you know, if I hadn't been so wired, I probably wouldn't have drank so much. And if I hadn't had such bad hangovers, I probably wouldn't have used all the diet pills or, or whatever other substance I could get in me for energy. 
maybe there's nothing wrong with me from having this debate while a man speaking. And um, his name is Clint Hodges, and some of you got to know her here, I'm sure, in sobriety. And he said something that really made me stop and think. He said, you know what? Our first step does not say we're alcoholic. It says we're powerless over alcohol. Ask yourself how well you drank when you did drink. That's the real question, he said. Well, that was like, for me, there were, I already told you, I drink badly. I want to drink badly, I think. But the reality was when I was sitting there and listening to him or sitting in a meeting listening to him, the thought hit me. I don't ever drink well. Never. There was a rumor going around at that time that Russia had come up with a pill that you could take before you drank. And no matter how much you drank, it would only feel like you had two drinks. And I remember sitting brand new at a meeting thinking, how horrible. I can't imagine just starting to get a buzz and having it in. You know, the debate for me ended a long time ago. It didn't take long. I'm a bad drinker. I'm an alcoholic man, period. When I was 90 days dry, the urge to drink hit me. I was down in Oceanside staying at a beach place. I'd been out in the water. I came back in and I was angry and I didn't like AA and I didn't like the idea about being sober and I hated life like I always had for a lot of years. And I came in and I got my street clothes on and I was gonna go buy a six pack. Cause you know, my family wouldn't have known any better. If I told them we drink every 90 days, I'd have said, better than every day, uh, good for you. <laughs> and instead I did something that I had no belief in and don't remember even hearing somebody say it specifically. But I got on my knees and I asked if there's a God, do something, I cannot stand the pain. I cannot stand the way I feel. And I swear to you, when I stood up, the urge to drink left and I've never had it come back again. Now, I've never had the urge to be wired again since I got sober, huh? I didn't have to ask God to remove it. I didn't have to, to wish, God, I wish I could have stayed up all night and chewed my cheeks raw again. I mean, none of that's never occurred to me. I have no, I have no debate with anybody who's got that battle going on, but I'm telling you, for me, it's this. I'm an alcoholic who used other things, and that's just that simple. So here's how what ended up happening. Late 1979, I'm married to my second wife. And if things outside of me should have fixed me, it should have been then. She looked for the part that I wanted. Huh? This beautiful blonde lady, had a Volkswagen van that was important to me. Those kind of things were important. <laughs> uh, and um, we're living in a two-story Cape Cod house with a white picket fence on a corner. I'm selling real estate, making more money than I was gonna make for a lot of years. And the thought of suicide is with me almost all the time. The only time it isn't is when I'm in the bar with my friends. And alcohol worked even that last day of drinking because here's what happens to somebody like me. I walk into a bar and I'm feeling so ashamed and guilty about the way I have lived and the people I have hurt. I could never kill my conscience totally. I could ignore it frequently, but it always sneaked back in and ruined the day sometimes. But once I sat down and started to have a beer with you, the past just seemed to vanish. And even the future that was so scary, what am I gonna do? How am I gonna make this work? Because you see, I've lived with another delusion that makes life unbearable for someone like me. 
I have somehow been raised or gathered the idea that I'm supposed to know how to handle situations, that I'm supposed to know the, the answer to whatever the particular dilemma is that I experience, that I'm supposed to figure it out. I can't even figure out what lane to get in on the freeway for Christ's sakes, but I, but I think I'm supposed to know exactly what to do. And so I make these decisions and then almost immediately regret them. I used to say I suffer from delayed clarity. You know what I'm saying? Right after some major decision, it's like, oh my God, like right after I do, it's like, oh no, I, I really didn't mean that. <laughs> or right after I buy a car, it's like, I hate that car. I wish somebody would steal it tonight. I mean, it's just immediate panic. One of my other symptoms that if I have a thought, it has a certain urgency to it. Everything I think has to be done now. There is no time to wait. I mean, it's got to be, I need to have it fixed now, whatever it is that's happened to occur in my mind. So my former wife and my mother started going to Al-Anon and everything in my world changed. And real quickly, I went to my first AA meeting as a result of feeling extremely uncomfortable at home and people recommending AA. By the way, if anybody outside you tells you, to, like if you're in a bar and the bartender recommends Alcoholics Anonymous, that's pretty good evidence. Maybe you should go to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> I got my first big book from a guy in a bar. It was uh, insulting, but nice. And uh, I walked into my first meeting and it was a participation meeting. And I just told you how scared I was by then to be in public without drinking. I was the kind of guy who would not yell out bingo at a bingo game, right? Out of fear there's... Maybe there's no 0367 or whatever the crap they are. And um, I walk in and I didn't know there were anything about AA. I didn't know anybody in the meeting. And this guy had a gavel and he's calling on people to speak and they're on these little tables. And I happened to sit in front of him. So I was sick to my stomach, but too scared to get up. So I pretended to be asleep. And, um, and then when he didn't call me, my feelings were hurt. It was a horrible <laughs> evening for me. And the whole thing was miserable. But it, it affirmed for me how terrible AA was. I thought how sad that human beings live like that. Uh, they stand in a circle and said a prayer. Oh my God, what if somebody saw me? I'm too, I'm too cool to be an AA. I think instead of the 20 questions, there should be one question. Did you ever think you were cool or might be? Then come on in. You know? <laughs> Just cuts right to the chase. Huh? <laughs> we were cool, all right. Um, a few weeks later, I started drinking again. I never went back. And on May the 30th, 1980, 42 years ago, I checked back into where that meeting was. They had a three-week program, and I've never had to drink for you since that morning ever again. And here's what I know as a fact. I did not have to want sobriety. I did not have to have a conscious uh, desire to stop drinking. You know, our steps are written in the past tense. It says things like we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. I couldn't admit that when I was new. I didn't know enough to admit it. I could, the best I might've been able to do if I was being honest is say, maybe that's true. I don't know. I don't think so, but maybe it's true. Um, but everything on the steps is past tense. Bill Wilson and the people who put together the big book put in there the things that they had done. What I've learned is this. 
There is no requirement that I believe in God in order for God to really exist. There is no requirement that I understand that a higher power can actually work and take care of details of my life in order for the higher power to actually do that. The God that I believe in today is so different than when I was new, because here's the way it seems to have worked for me. God was gentle enough to leave me alone, to not make me do any, I'm still free tonight to drink. I'm free not to come to another meeting. I can still chase and run and do all the things I've done all my life. And I'll get the same results like I always have. That wasn't what appealed to me. I was in that little treatment program for three weeks with no desire to stop drinking, but a desire to get a divorce, to move to the beach and get out of real estate. And on a Sunday night, just like this, a little white haired man like me um, came to talk to the 21 of us who were patients there on a hospital institutions panel. And I was already mad. Uh, I'm staying mad all the time anyway, but I was even madder then because I had to quit watching TV and go listen to this guy. And he's sitting at a table and they're saying, there's the panel. And I'm pointing out to everybody, that's only one person. That's not a panel. You have to have two or more people to have a panel. <laughs> and, the, and the other patients were saying things to me like, shut up. And I, and I hated the little guy, but I was planning my life. I was going to get out on Tuesday. And he's talking and I'm daydreaming like you're doing. And he said, uh, <laughs> he said, he said, do you want to know what I found here in Alcoholics Anonymous? And I thought, no. It woke me up for a moment. It bothered me. I thought, no, I don't want it. Well, who cares what you found? And then he said it again. Do you want to know what I found here in Alcoholics Anonymous? And I'm thinking, pal, I don't want to know. Nobody wants to know, right? <laughs> Nobody cares about you. Because what did he find? He found God. I'm not looking. I'm not, not even interested. Or he made friends. I was still calling my friends from a payphone. Uh, I called the bar every day to see how they were doing. But he said something that profoundly made me be still, made my, actually made my mind be quiet. He said this. He said, what I found here is a higher degree of mental comfortableness. I have peace of mind. I had never had peace of mind that I could remember. I hadn't had a quiet moment in years unless I was passed out. He said he was gonna go home to a wife he loved. That he was gonna get up in the morning and fix his lunch in his lunch pail and then have breakfast with his children because he wanted to. And he was gonna go to work and give him eight hours of work for eight hours of pay and come home to his family. You know, there were a million nights I wanted to go home, but I couldn't go home because I might miss out on some action. Huh? What if something else is going on at the other bar? I'm not going home. And uh, he said he was gonna go home and have dinner with his family because he wanted to be at home. Not because he had to go, he wanted to go home. And then he was gonna go to a meeting and smoke cigarettes and drink coffee and he never had it so good. I know what he's talking about tonight. He's talking about the result of working the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, of actually trying to surrender, of actually trying as best anyone can at any particular time in their sobriety or early sobriety or late sobriety for that matter, to quit trying to run their own life. You know, I can say every day, I am powerless over alcohol and my life is unmanageable, but I sure spend an inordinate amount of time trying to manage my life for somebody who claims that to be true. Either God is or he isn't, they tell us. And here's the nice thing about God. He doesn't care if I understand it or not. No. Through a series of things, uh, I went back to my room that night after he left 
and I started to read the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and Bill Wilson's writings touch me the same way to this day. There's something about that style of writing and the talk that maybe people like me actually are at peace. You know, one of the best phrases in AA is we're supposed to be happy, joyous, and free. Isn't that a nice thought? I want to be happy, joyous, and free. But I've changed it for me over the years. I want to be content. I want to be okay with who I am today without you having to change, without me having to change anything and without you having to tell me I'm okay. Without you having to tell me I'm special. I mean, there are a lot of fun jokes about it in AA, about that self-obsession and that need. But the reality is it's a torturous way to live, to always need somebody else to give reassurance, to always have to be so afraid that I have to figure out the correct answer to whatever today's dilemma is, whether it's real or imagined by me. It's a hard way to, it is no wonder to me I drank. Um, it is, to stop that self-torture is an amazing thing. But I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous today because I choose to be. And because exactly what I told you, the ability to be content without having to use anything has happened for me. It doesn't mean I like AA all the time. You know what we owe each other when we speak? It isn't funny stories. I love funny stories. It isn't entertainment. I like it. It's even, you know, a, a few dirty stories are good too. I particularly appreciate from the public. <laughs> but what I really want is the truth. I want you to tell me the truth. Because if I'm the only one in the room who's still not happy, joyous, and free, and everybody else is, I don't fit here either. I have to find somewhere else, if there is anywhere else, or suicide. Some days, life feels really good. Some days, it doesn't. And you know what's kept me somewhat sane? Sponsorship. I have had strong sponsorship. My first sponsor came out of the Pacific Group, as some of you know, out of West Los Angeles. Clancy was my... <laughs> It was in my life, all my sobriety. They taught me how to act like a sober man, even if I didn't understand it yet. We didn't do studies on the book. We took actions better than the way we think and feel. We showed up at meetings early and shook hands. They made me meet people at meetings, scared me to death. My first year sober, my sponsor told me I wasn't making those changes that I had told him that I was going to make. Um, like a divorce and moving and, and getting out of real estate. I, mean, I couldn't make any change. And that first year was hard. All that money I thought I had, I didn't really have. Huh? The Mercedes was gone. I was driving a flesh colored Ford by the end of the year. That, that's a pretty cool car. Yeah. <laughs> but it all worked out. You know, I started applying for jobs at the end of that year and I couldn't get any job that I thought I should get. And I kept wondering, where's this God they all talk about, this loving God? I'm not, I almost got him, but didn't get him. It seemed like torture, in fact. And one day I got a job offer in Orange County to be, be a probation officer. And I told him the truth about everything, the little arrests, the alcoholism, the, the, the drugs, all of it. And I was grateful to get that job until my first day of work. Uh, and when I got there, I realized it was a mistake. And I told my sponsor I was going to leave. And he said, no, you're not. People like you are quitters. You're going to stay one year. He got caught up on the one year a lot. He made me stay married. <laughs> and I ran out of time to tell you some of the best parts. But here's the long and short of that. I liked that job. I stayed there two years. Um, 
And I started going to law school at nights and on weekends. And some of you know, I became a lawyer. On my sixth AA birthday, I got the results in the mail that I'd become an attorney in California. And again, leave out the details for a minute. Things that should not have worked put me in a position where I got a job offer to become a district attorney. I had no desire to be a district attorney, none. But I took the job and I, I had a talent to do trials. By then I wasn't so afraid to speak in public, I guess. I became chief of homicide. I became chief deputy in charge of homicide for a lot of years. It was the perfect job for me. I would have missed all of it listening to my own emotions again. How many things have I missed in life listening to my own emotions? I'll never know, but I bet there were a billion wonderful things because fear and other defects of character have held me back. And I've had to have strong sponsorship and I have a strong sponsor today of people I tell men that I tell the truth to about those kind of things. So they can tell me, they can give me guidance and direction. They can help me sit still. I've often said when something's happened in my world that's been scary or has actually been the trouble and actually happened, I've often said, why didn't you just tell me it was gonna work out? But don't we tell each other that every week, every night at a meeting? It's gonna work out. Whatever it is, it is gonna work out. I just, I just wanna know how. Huh? I want somebody to tell what if I don't like the way it's gonna work out? I, I, <laughs> have some say in it, yeah. but you know, the reality is everything, everything I have feared, the ones that have happened, the sad ones, the horrible ones have all been okay. And I need to finish with this. Here's my belief about a higher power in my life. I don't believe God does anything to hurt us or punish us or teach us any lessons. I'm not one of those people who subscribe to the fact that when a little baby's murdered, that God needed another little angel. However consoling that might be to hear, I don't think God does bad things to people. My friend Barbara had a story that she told when she got diagnosed with MS and she went to her women's group that night and said, where's God? A question how many of us ask? How many times? If I were God, I'd say, you know what? I'm tired of asking. I'm leaving. Uh, um, she said, where's, where's that loving God everybody talks about? I've got MS. And she said a woman in her meeting told her you know, Barbara, God was just as sad as you were when you got that diagnosis. He'll help you handle it. That's what God does for people like us. I've, that's been my experience. I don't like all the things that happen, but, no, but I don't get a say in all of them. So here's my deal. I think we are supposed to be happy, Joyce and Frank. And I can have moments like that or times like that to the extent that I'm able to surrender. I was fortunate enough to know Chuck Chamberlain when he was alive, to even spend some time with him at his house in Laguna and sit and have him talk about what he believed in a higher power. And I sat there and I thought, I wanna believe that, but I don't believe it. So here's what I think God wanted from me. He wanted me to just be honest with him and be able to say to him, I don't know. I don't know if you really help people or not. I don't know what you do. And when I die, I may get that answer, but until then, I won't know. Huh? I've been here 42 years, and I stay because my life is better. This afternoon, I got a little ranch. I got four horses and four dogs, and I was outside working and totally forgot I had to be here tonight. Totally. And at 5 o'clock, noticed the message. Like, who are you bringing as a 10-minute speaker? 
Uh, nobody. Uh, I'm, I have COVID, I can't make it. <laughs> That's my first thought. <laughs> but what you've taught me to do is to do what I said I'm gonna do. That's one of the most spiritual things I'm able to do. Thanks for letting me be here tonight.